It is uh, great to be here with you guys this morning. I have looked forward to, since I got the invitation to come and share with you, uh, to being here and just seeing what God's doing. For those of you who don't know my background, Skip to talked about us starting a church. Uh, we started with six people. That was in 1985. I was the youth pastor here, had gone through a shepherd school with Skip, and we called it a shepherd school back then. He identified people that possibly had teaching gifts and took them through a shepherding class and um, then encouraged me to go to Santa Fe, which I didn't want to go to. And uh, he, he asked me several times, and I finally said to him, Skip, if you think I should go, if you really believe God wants me there, I'll go. And Skip said, well, I can't tell you that. But a few weeks later, he brought up Tucson, and there was just something about it. And um, so in October of 1985, we packed up our one-year-old little daughter and we moved to Tucson, Arizona, and that was 35 years ago. And uh, it's just such a blessing to come back to the church that encouraged us in ministry and sent us out. Now, yesterday afternoon when I was preparing some of my study, I took some time to look at a few pictures on Facebook and I saw a picture of Skip, Greg Laurie, and Michael W. Smith. Uh, there on the mall in Washington, D.C. for the day of prayer. And I got to say, I was a little jealous. A little jealousy kind of sprung up in my heart. I, I want to be there. I, I want to I be where they're at. I I'm really glad to be here with you, but I think that during our time of prayer, we should join together and pray for this nation. In the spirit of what Skip is doing this weekend, we will, um, we will join together and pray uh, for this nation. It's good to see you guys. I know many of you. Uh, you can open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 11. We'll start at verse 16 today. I've got a couple of things I want to cover first before we get into our text, and then we will get into them. I also want to welcome those of you that are watching on the other campuses uh, and also those that are out in the amphitheater. We hope that God really does bless this time today as we turn to his word. Uh, you can see the title of the message is How to Survive Grief. Let's pray. And um, I will get into the study. Father, we want to, first of all, thank you for this nation where we are able to worship together freely the way that we desire to. We thank you that, that tens of thousands of people gathered together in Washington to seek you for this nation. And we want to join together with those prayers. And we pray that you would do a work, bring revival to our nation. Let the power of your spirit sweep through this place. Let these things that we have gone through this year be a start to people evaluating their lives and what they are living for. And we pray that you would enrich us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And meet us here today as we talk about this very serious topic of grief. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is How to Survive Grief. But not only do I want to talk to you when you face grief, and I know because when you're talking about topics like this, there are a lot of people going through it. I heard Charles Swindoll say years ago that if you preach to the hurting, you are never going to lack for an audience. And I know there are a lot of you going through difficult, hard times right now. But if the Lord tarries, we're all going to. We're all going to face the loss of someone we love, the loss of our own health, the loss of our own life. We'll all face grief. So this is a good topic for us to evaluate. 
before we are all of a sudden just thrown into grief for us to be able to evaluate what are the right and wrong ways to grieve. But that's not the only thing that I want to do today. I also want to come alongside of you in kind of a clinic-like fashion and help you to be prepared when someone that you love, someone close to you, suffers a great loss. We are very awkward. We walk into a room with someone that's lost. They're, they're close to us, but they've lost someone, and we don't know what to say, and we don't know how to respond. And sometimes we say things that are trite because we don't know what to say. Sometimes we say things that are hurtful. And, and I want to just help to equip you that you can come alongside of someone effectively and help them to be able to make it through their grief. Now, I want to do this in three different ways. First of all, I want to tell you my story, my own personal experience with grief. Secondly, I want to talk to you about what the Bible has to say about grief, just grief in general and what the Bible has to say about grief. And finally, we want to look at our text in John chapter 11, where we find two sisters, and because God delayed, they were thrown into grief. We often think about poor Lazarus, Jesus delaying for two days and Lazarus going through death and then being dead for four days and then rising from the dead and eventually having to die again. The guy had to die twice. Maybe the second time he was like, I got this. I know exactly, I know exactly how to handle this. But not only did he have to suffer because Jesus delayed, but these two sisters went into deep grief and we get to see Jesus interacting with two women in the midst of their grief and there are some very important things that we learn from that as well. So I want to start, first of all, with my story. As I told you, we began the ministry in Tucson in October of 1985. This October will be 35 years ago. Uh, when we went into ministry, uh, I, had, I had met Lisa here. For those of you who don't know, I grew up in Albuquerque. Uh, I went to Highland High School, Van Buren Junior High, uh, I had met Lisa when I came back to the Lord. I had been backslidden for a year, and uh, several of my friends got saved. That's how God came and got me. God began to work in my life, and I recommitted my life to the Lord, but I was slow in responding and coming back to him. So a couple, of, one of my friends called me, my best friend, my cruise buddy. We used to cruise, you know, Eubank uh, together, for those of you guys that did that. Way back when. And um, he called me, and he said, uh, Robert, I got saved. You got to go to church with me. He had no idea that I knew exactly what he was talking about. I had met the Lord at 13, walked away from God at 18, so I had five years in Assembly of God churches and Foursquare churches, and the answer, if you remember, that little kind of radical charismatic church, I think it was on Trumbull. So I already had a foundation for it, and I knew exactly what he was talking about, and so I came back to Christ. And shortly after coming back to Christ, we were attending the answer at the time, and I'd met a girl and she had walked up to the front of the stage to worship because people would gather around the stage to worship. And I saw her walk up there and I walked up next to her. This will let you know where my mind was. I looked at her and I said to God, can I marry her? Will you, will you allow me to marry her? And, and God answered that prayer. I don't know quite how she felt about God answering that prayer, but God answered that prayer for me. And about a year and eight months later, we were married. A couple years later, we had a little girl. And a year later, we packed up the little family and we moved to Tucson, Arizona to start the church. We immediately learned that part of ministry is coming alongside of people who are grieving. The first tragedy in our church was a woman who had walked out of the bathroom while her little girl was in the bathtub 
was only gone for a few seconds, but came back and her daughter had drowned. It was brutal. We had come alongside of people that lost their kids in, in accidents, car accidents. We came alongside of a family a few years later that had their daughter, I had said last night that she was on a mission trip, but I believe she was there for the military and she was beaten to death by a guy that she had started to date in Bulgaria. And we came alongside of that family as they had dealt with grief. And for 29 years, me and Lisa worked side by side, helping people struggling. Grief, difficulties, hardship was something that happened to someone else. Our life was just moving forward for, for 29 years until we got a diagnosis that she had lung cancer. And a few weeks after that, it was stage four lung cancer. We never asked the doctors for a diagnosis, for a prognosis. We, um, we figured God's our, you know, God's the one who gives us a prognosis. God's the one who's in charge of our lives. We sought him and we prayed. We anointed her with oil and we prayed for her. And um, we went to the University of Arizona Oncology because they're cutting edge across the nation. And the first treatment that she went through removed all evidence of the, of the cancer. And, and we rejoiced. But eight months later, it came back. And it came back with a vengeance. She suddenly began to suffer greatly. And what I didn't realize about her at that time, I was, I was not really grieving yet. You know, I'm probably that typical man. When, when I found out she was sick, I was about where are we gonna get help? What kind of doctors are we gonna get her? How are we gonna make sure she gets the best care? How is she gonna be able to survive this? I just went rolling on, doing the things that I was gonna do to make sure that my wife was gonna be taken care of. But she began to grieve the loss of her health. Because see, not only do we grieve when we lose someone we love, but we grieve for different reasons. Sometimes the loss of a friendship, sometimes the loss of a marriage, Divorce can bring deep and heavy grieving. Sometimes a breakup. Breakups are, are hard, right? They can, be, they can be hard and they can be difficult. The loss of a pet. I bawled like a baby when I lost two of my dogs to coyotes. I bawled while I was burying them. You say, where'd you bury them? None of your business where I buried them. But um, I didn't know she was going through that grief during that time. I didn't identify it. I didn't recognize it until later on when I was going through my own grief. She, um, the last couple months of her life, well, she was grieving not only the loss of her life, but the loss of seeing her family. We had a little girl who would turn four on the day that she would die. And I would find myself asking God, why? Why on Emma's birthday? We had a, a, a little, our, our first little grandson was born two months before she died. And then the last two months of her life, I would ask her, what do you want to do tonight? And she would say, I want to go hold Evan. So we would get in the car and we would drive over and she would hold that little boy. And she was grieving the fact that she wasn't going to see him grow up. Now she came to the point of accepting that she was going to die before I did. I think she went through the grief process and she came to the point where she said, God's not going to heal me. And to me, that was anathema. I was like, no way. God is going to heal you. You are going to make it. But she kind of came alongside of me. And I got to tell you, through the whole process of her death, there was, a, there was an uncanny peace. The peace of God was all around it. She would say to me, we would get ready to go to a doctor's appointment. She would say to me, I have that strange peace again. I think it's going to be bad news. And sure enough, it would be bad news. Well, two weeks before she died, we 
finally made the decision to put her into home hospice. And home hospice, I think, is better than, than being in a hospice somewhere, but it is brutal. And uh, she had put on the last pastor's conference she had done. She did great past, pastor's wives' conferences. And, uh, or, or excuse me, women's conferences. She did great women's conferences. And the last women's conference that she did, she had done it on heaven, which was really fitting. In fact, when Skip came, and, and my friends were so incredible, and Skip had told me, I'll drop anything and I'll be there for you and your church anytime you need it. Skip was there the week before she died. And she asked me, she said, after Skip teaches, can you have him come by the hospital? And I said, sure, why? She goes, well, I wanna talk to him about what's gonna happen to me after I die. And I'm like, I'm a pastor. You could talk to me. You have to have, Skip, Skip came by and we had that great conversation. Um, but uh, we put her into home hospice finally. And um, as, as she progressed, she, that picture of heaven was on her right and she leaned more and more to her right. I don't know what was happening with the tumors inside of her, but they were growing fast and something was causing her to lean to the right. And um, I kind of looked like she was leaning towards heaven to me. And I came in one Saturday morning. Gino Geraci was teaching for me from Calvary Chapel, South Denver. And I gave her a drink of water through a syringe, which is what we were doing then. And I kind of straightened her up a little bit and I heard her gasp. And I went around and I looked into her face and I saw her kind of get a shocked look on her face, and then she breathed out her last breath. And that will always be a painful memory for me, the day that the person in my life was taken away from me, the day that I began my journey through grief. Up until that point, I hadn't stopped to grieve. I was just taking care of things. And what I had seen other people go through I suddenly found myself facing. And I went through a year and a half of darkness. I went through, I, I began to teach two weeks after she passed away. And, and I had someone say to me, is that healthy for you to be teaching so soon? My answer was probably not, but what am I gonna do? I can only sit in my living room for so long. I can only sit and stare for so long. During those times of grief, I had people who, were, who intended good that would say things to me that were not helpful at all. God wanted her more in heaven than you wanted her. I wanted to say, that's not true. I don't know why God took her, but, but I don't think that's the reason. God was like, I just need her here more than you do, so I'm gonna take her. Well, someone said to me, well, I, I don't understand why you're, you're so full of grief. She's in heaven. Because I'm not grieving that she's in heaven. Oh, she's in heaven. She's in the presence of Jesus. Her face is radiant as she looks upon him. How sad. It was that I miss her. We don't grieve someone because they're in heaven. We grieve for someone because we miss them. And we miss them greatly. That personality in their lives. The things I missed about Lisa, I missed her checking the door. I don't know a hundred times before she went to bed at night. Her asking me, will you check the door so I don't have to? And then me checking the door and going to bed and her going, did you check the door? And me saying, yes, I did. And her getting up out of bed to go and check to check if I checked the door. <laughs> Shortly after she had died, we sat in our living room with our family and we talked about those little quirky things in her life and we laughed about them. Isn't it interesting that it's those quirky things that we miss about someone? I went through those, those dark days for a year and a half and I have remarried. 
I remarried, will be this coming up April, so almost a, a year from now, uh, will be six years, so a little over five years I've been married. And God brought Kathy into my life at just the perfect time. And I gotta say the perfect woman as well uh, for me. Um, she had, I, I had been, as I said, grieving for a year and a half, and um, the, gr the grief was beginning to lift. And I was beginning to realize I don't wanna be alone. And so I began to look around. And there had, had be begun to attend the church a lot of different single women that had begun to set up front in the church services and come up and talk to me after services. And uh, I, uh, I had determined I wasn't gonna date somebody from the church because dating is brutal, right? And if I break up, it's gonna divide the church. It'll split the church. They'll be like, well, why did Robert do that to her? And they're gonna leave. So I knew I couldn't date someone from the church. So Kathy, I had known her years ago, and she came up to me with a friend after a service and just said, hi, do you remember me? And I said, of course I remember you. And we talked a little bit, and she had a friend with her, and I talked to her friend more than I talked to her because her friend had some questions, and she thought, oh, no, he likes her. So a few days later, I remembered that she had come up, and I looked her up on Facebook, and then I Facebook stalked every picture of her on there. And I sent her a message. Hi, it was good to see you the other night. You looked good, okay? Uh, how are you doing? So a little compliment, a little like feedback. She said she screamed when she got the message. And uh, she uh, text messaged me back. And a week later, we went on our first date to Vivachi's, which is a really nice restaurant in Tucson that overlooks the city lights. And uh, we closed the joint down. We, the time just flew. We turned around and looked back at the waiters and waitresses and they were huddling to who was gonna go tell us to get out because it was, so, it was so late. God had brought her into my life and the joy returned. And people around me began to see the joy returning. Whether I was with her or not, they said there's a, there's a change in your life now as that joy began to come back into my life. During the period of grieving, my kids were really worried about me. And, 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 and to some degree, rightfully so, because life had lost all meaning to me. I got to the point where I didn't wanna live. I accused God of not loving me or loving her. One day I, I, on my bed, I had said to God, uh, just take me, just take me now. I don't wanna live. It wasn't suicidal thoughts, but it was honesty with God that I would rather die at that point than continue to live. I just didn't want to live. Now, one of the things that people say, and they, you know, all kinds of hurtful things are said, but I didn't expect it when I started to move forward with my life that some friends who knew Lisa before saw that as a betrayal. And so they said things like, you've moved on. You've moved on, so okay. Or he's moved on, somebody would tell me, they would say, so okay. And I always hated that statement because you don't move on from losing a child. You don't move on from losing a husband or a wife. You don't move on from those. You move forward with them, and Lisa will always be a part of my life. Those memories that I made with her for those 30 years of marriage will always be there with me. I have moved forward, and God has given me a woman that is, that is so kind and is, is so full of joy and, and is the exact right woman to step into a church and begin to be a pastor's wife at this stage of life. Just absolutely perfect. But she understands, she, she will ask me, like on Lisa's birthday, 
I won't, she, I won't say anything to her that I'm thinking about, Lisa. But she'll say, how are you? How, how are you today? She's not threatened by Lisa. And that's the perfect person to have brought into your life. Now, as I said, I faced grief and I went through it myself. And I, I want to share with you a quick few things about grief that are absolutely necessary. And then a few scriptures about grief. Uh, first of all, uh, going through grief is natural and it's absolutely necessary. You, you have to, there, a, a great loss takes a great time to recover from. Don't let people try to speed you up in your grief. Grief is different for everybody. I'm so thankful that Skip called me shortly after I lost Lisa and just said everybody grieves differently. There's no rules in grieving, so just grieve the way that you grieve. And that's such an important thing. People grieve on different levels through different things. Sometimes extenuating circumstances can cause even greater grief, like the family that lost their daughter in Bulgaria beaten by a guy that she was dating. You can see how that would bring a heavier grief into someone's life to have to face a loss like that. Levi Lusco, Levi and Jenny, lost Lenya seven days after I lost Lisa. That March, we had our pastor's conference in Calvary Tucson. We do the Southwest Pastors and Leadership Conference there for Calvary Chapel. And Levi was there speaking, and um, me and him went together to Lawn Cantata Mall. And we walked around and we talked about our losses. It was interesting talking to him because in my grieving, I was grieving the fact that as those last days came along, I couldn't really communicate with her. I felt guilty over that. Levi was grieving the fact that he didn't get to say goodbye to Linya, that he just lost her, that he never had a chance to say goodbye. And I would say, yeah, but I saw my wife suffer in great ways I would never want it to happen. And he would say, at least you get to say goodbye. And we would see that even though there were different layers to our grief, being with someone who was grieving was so incredibly healthy. We had Jeremy Camp that had come to our, one of our resurrection celebrations, and he wanted to see me. This is after the loss of, of Lisa, and first year after it. And I went in and sat down and it was more serious than most of the time when you meet, you know, these different artists, develop relationships with them. And he sat down and told me a few things he had gone through and comforted me with the comfort that he had been comforted with, with the loss of his wife. And also encouraged me in moving through it as well, that you've got to move through this grief. There are those that try to help come along and, and as I said before they don't know what to say so they say things that are trite and I just want to say to those of you who are going through grief to have grace and patience with those who come in and say hurtful things sometimes they say them on purpose I had one guy who told me you were the leader of your home and your wife got cancer on your watch therefore it's your fault to which I want to say well bye move along you know, it's just, it's just not worth getting into those things. But you have to have some, you have to have some patience. The five, and seven, the, the five stages of grief, the seven stages of grief came out a long time ago. It's been over 40 years. And they, they came out as steps. You begin to climb through them and they were hard and fast. You go through denial first and then you go through anger and then, you know, you got all these different steps. And although you go through those stages, you're not really climbing out. Grief is not like a ladder that helps you climb out. 
with different steps, it's like a roller coaster. You go up and you go down, you go out and you go around and you're back where you began again. And it's all different. Unique uh, uh, grief is unique for each one of us as we take time to go through it. And when we finally make our way through, whatever steps we go through, denial, guilt, depression, isolation, acceptance, distractions is one that I, I would add in there because I found that people who are going through grieving, it's an incredible inner pain and you wanna distract yourself any way that you can. And I found that people will medicate themselves, people will use alcohol, people who never drank will begin to drink because they're trying to dull the pain. I had a couple of guys that I was dealing with grief and they turned to pornography. And I would ask them, why now? They never struggled with it before, why now? It, it took them a while to come to the reality that they were trying to escape their pain through any kind of distraction that they could go through. And this is good for us to realize when we're facing grief. You have to face it. You have to go through it. You can't escape it. It's like those of you that are Marines here. You learn that you gotta go through things. You can't not go through things. I was with a Marine in Israel on one of our trips to Israel, and it was a rainy, miserable, cold day in Jerusalem. And he stood out there, he had a little hood on, and the rain was just running down, he just stood there. And I had my umbrella, and, and, and I'm like, well, you're taking this well. He goes, what are you gonna do? You just go through it. And I thought, that's perfect for grief. What are you gonna do? You just go through it. Here's the seven things the Bible has to say, excuse me, six things the Bible has to say about grief. And I'm gonna give you some scriptures here in kind of rapid fire, so you might wanna take some notes or catch up on this study later on. But number one, we must go through it. Matthew 5, 4 says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You are blessed when you mourn, for you will get to the place of comfort. Luke 6, 21 says, blessed are you when you weep now, for you shall laugh. When you are weeping now, you will come to the place where you laugh. You can't avoid your grief, you can't go around it, you can't skip it, you can't go above it, you have to face it head on, you've gotta envelop yourself in that, in that grief. In uh, second, God is with us in our grief. In Isaiah 53, it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus has carried, and I believe in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus told Peter, James, and John, I am so sorrowful, I think I'm going to die, that he was carrying our grief, the grief of the entire world. Not so that we wouldn't feel it, but so that he would carry it with us. He literally knows the grief that we have. By the way, for us, the best thing that we can do when someone is grieving is to come alongside of them and carry their grief, is to grieve with them. The most helpful thing for me when I, when I was grieving was people that entered into my grief through something God has given us called empathy. When you grieve with those who grieve, rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve. Your job is never to cheer up a person who's grieving, even if they've been grieving for a long time. Your job is to cheer them up. Your job is to go in and grieve with them, to embrace them, tell them how sorry you are for their loss, and to cry with them, enter into that grieving with them. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. In Psalms 34, 18, it says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. You may have a broken heart today and you need to know that God is near you in that broken heart. I love that a broken heart is first brought up in the scriptures. That's the first time you find the, the phrase anywhere, 
God is near those who have a broken heart. And of course, Psalms 23, 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God is with us when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. He may deliver you, but he may go with you through it. Number three, God helps us in our grieving. In Psalms 56, 8, it says, You number my wanderings. You put my tears into a bottle. Are they not in your book? God remembers all of our tears and all of our grieving. In Psalms 30, 11, it says, You have turned from me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. God is taking you through that process of grief. As you go through it to be able to be healed, it is God that is removing it from you and giving you that dancing. In uh, the fourth is that grieving will end. Revelation 21.4 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to what will be revealed in us. And Psalms 35 says, His favor is for life. Weeping endures but for a night, and joy comes in the morning. Those who are experts on grieving will tell us that the average time of grieving for someone, a deep, great loss, is between a year and a year and a half. I talked about distractions earlier. One of the ways that people will be distracted in the middle of grief is to get into a relationship very soon. And I realize there may be some of you here that did that, and God took you through that process, and you're okay, and that's good. But I just want to say to those of you that are facing grief or maybe will here in the future, don't, uh, don't get into a relationship too fast. When you get into a, a new relationship, there are those endorphins that come along and that new relationship of meeting someone. And um, it can be a distraction, but it also stops you from going through the process of grief and can cause you to get stuck in grief and you won't get healthy out the, through the other side. Sometimes people get stuck in grief in the, in the depression. Sometimes people get stuck in grief in the anger. Got to make sure you don't. Number five is that it's, it's to what to do in grief. What do we do in grief? The Bible tells us. First uh, Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Tell God how you feel. I'm glad that God isn't shocked by it. I told you that I accused God of not loving me nor loving Lisa for letting her go through that. And I'm so glad that God didn't judge me on that day, on that moment because he could have. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So if you are grieving, don't isolate yourself, but find someone who will come and grieve with you. 2 Corinthians 1, 4 says, who comforts us in our tribulations that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort which with we ourselves are comforted by. So people that can come alongside of you that have experienced it, it's very important. Number six, the Bible tells us that we will be reunited with our loved ones that are in Christ. And I realize that some of you have lost loved ones that haven't made a commitment to Christ. And that's a whole kind of a level that you have to go through and you have to face. But for those of us that know our loved ones knew the Lord or have a hope that they know Christ, that they, that they made a commitment to know Christ, then we know that there will be a reunion. And that's what we find in our text today. 
It's taken us a long time to get to our text, hasn't it? We find that in John 11, verse 17. We see that Jesus has gotten the news that Lazarus is sick. It says he loved them, so he waited two more days. He shows up and he has been dead for four days. By this time, there is the decomposition has started. There is, a, there, there is a stench. We'll see that here in a moment. And it says, verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha. And Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary was sitting in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I love that Mary says the same kind of things that we say when we're going through grief. I love that that the word of God doesn't candy coat it because in her statement is an accusation. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You could have stopped this from happening. And which one of us that had that has gone through a deep grief has not said something like that to God? Like me, I don't think you loved me. I don't think you loved her. Otherwise, you wouldn't have let us go through this. And her, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Now she may realize right away that that's a little, you know, to, to charge the Messiah, the Son of God, with not really caring is a little bit out there. So immediately she says in verse 22, but even now I know Whatever you ask God, God will give you. This was not her saying, can you raise him from the dead? She had thought, it's too long. Everybody else, this is unique. Everybody else has risen from the dead and there have been two other people. They were dead almost the same day. He was on the way to the little girl's house to pray for her to be healed when she died and they met him on the way and then Jesus went and rose her up just a few hours after she had died. But he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Now again, when, when we can become, when we go to help someone who's grieving, like Jesus is here, we, can, we, we go in sometimes with our scripture machine gun, hoping that something sticks. Bam, 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 bam. We go quote all kinds of things. When I first began helping people who are grieving, I would plan what I was gonna say before I got there. I learned quickly that was no good because then I would try to have to steer a conversation. The best help that I ever got was a few days after Lisa had died, I was in the backyard just sitting by myself. One of my friends came by, a pastor, and I looked up and I saw him coming in. I nodded at him, he nodded at me. And he came and he sat down by me and didn't say anything. I wasn't crying at the time, I was just quiet. And he just sat there quiet with me. He didn't have to rush into a conversation. He didn't have to start giving me Romans 8.28. After about 10 minutes or so, maybe a little less than that, I began to tell him what I was feeling. And he began to respond to me based on what I was feeling. And the scriptures that he could share then were very helpful. Well-placed scriptures in the context of a conversation you're having with a grieving person is powerful. To just go in and start firing off scriptures is not helpful. Jesus gives and that's not to say that the word of God isn't powerful, but it's being led by the spirit. How can you plan before, you, know, you get in there and you gotta, you're talking and you're led by the spirit and the spirit begins to bring scriptures to you that you share and it becomes very powerful. Now Martha says to him in verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection in the last, the last days. And Jesus said to her, and this is this great statement, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, that's a great question to ask you. If Jesus said, I'm the re resurrection and the life, and if you believe in me, you will never die, and even if you do die, you will live, do you believe it? If you're here today, if you're at one of the campuses, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And we have this account to show us that he is. And she said, yes, Lord. And listen to the confession of Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's quite a statement. Peter had said, I believe that you are the Christ. I'm, she said, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher is coming, he's calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with him in the house comforting her. When they saw Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her saying, she's going to the tomb. And when Mary came to Jesus, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Again, the accusation, but from a different perspective. We see Mary at the feet of Jesus where she always is, right? She's there listening to his word. She's there anointing his feet. And, and here she's in her grief. Out of all the people who knew the Lord the best, Mary may have been, because she sat at his feet and learned his word, she would anoint his feet for his death, for his burial. She had this relationship with Christ before, and that was carried into her grief. That's good for us. But it's a little different tone because she says it in this great sorrow, falling down before his feet. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Now, people come up with all kinds of different ideas as to why Jesus groaned in his spirit. Some say it was because he was angry at death or angry at unbelief. Well, I don't know. I mean, we don't really know. It doesn't tell us why he groaned. But, but I think if I put it in context, he's grieving with them. He's doing what the Bible says. He's mourning with those who mourn. His empathy entered into it. Again, God has given us this great thing called empathy. And when we minister with people by empathizing with them, it's very powerful. And it says that he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how we loved him. So again, he wept with them as they wept. And this is one of the most powerful ways that you can come alongside of someone. It's not the things that you say. It's being there with them and grieving with them as they are facing this great sorrow. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then in verse 38, then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. So he groaned all the way to the tomb. From the time that he saw her fall down and them weeping, he wept with them and he groaned with them and he groaned as he came to the tomb. And it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. That's his command. Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Now she doesn't tell him no, but she brings up an objection. Lord, by now there's a stench. 
But something about the ministry of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the healings of Jesus, Jesus doesn't ever tell someone, I'm going to heal you and I'm gonna pray for you now. Jesus gives them a command. The man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. You might say that's a mean thing to say to a man with the withered hand. But in the words, the command to do it, there was power and he stretched out his hand. To the 10 lepers that he met in, in a Samaritan village, he said to them, go and show yourselves to a priest. That's all he said to them. He didn't say, now you're gonna be healed. He just said, go. And the Bible says, in the going, they were healed. When they did what Jesus said, they were healed. And you find out all the way through. Pick up your bed and walk, he said to the man who was a paralytic. He picked up his bed and he walked. He didn't say, you are now healed. He didn't pray for him. He simply said, pick up your bed and walk. Martha has seen that. That in the commands of Jesus, cease and be still, the wind and the waves stop. He speaks in, with a word and demons leave. But she brings up an objection. Remove the stone. But Lord, and I wonder when God gives us his word, which is every bit as powerful, Jesus is the word of God. And the word that we are studying today is every bit as powerful as his words. And in the commands that he gives us, there is power to be able to gain the things that God says. And I wonder if we don't bring up objections. Jesus says, forgive or you will not be forgiven. But you don't know what they did to me, Lord. An objection. Love everyone. Love everyone. Well, you don't know. I got some people that are unlovable. So you have an objection. She has an objection. And there's a sermon in that all by itself. That we would submit or surrender ourselves to the obedience of Christ. You tell me through your word what to do and I will do it. And we would connect ourselves with the power of God. So she had an objection. Look at Jesus' response to her. Verse 40. Jesus said, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me because of the people standing by. I said this, that they may believe that you have sent me. Now, I don't know if I'm right or not, but I think this is the only miracle Jesus did where he had a prayer to the Father first. And in this resurrection, this, this, this capstone miracle of the ministry of Jesus, he wants everyone to know that the resurrection is the Father and the Son working together for this resurrection. And so he prays. And he doesn't pray that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He just says, I know you hear me, and for the sake of those who have here, I've prayed this prayer. And then he says, verse 43, now when he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. It wasn't some small little prayer. This is a contrast between those mystics that say they're little incantations to try to make something happen or to put a curse on someone. Jesus cries out. The Jews came from the home with Mary. Martha is there. It must have startled them. And every preacher who has taught this passage says that if Jesus would not have said Lazarus come out, he would have emptied out the tomb, right? Everybody. And so he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And he who, was, who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And I think, what a humiliating way to come out of the grave. I assume they put him in a robe and then wrapped him up. Jesus had to do the healing of getting rid of the decay in order for him to be healed. 
He could have taken away the grave clothes, right? And Lazarus could have walked out of the grave. I'm alive. But instead, he wakes up in there. Lazarus come forth. He wakes up. He's all wrapped up. And he's like, what's that smell? And he gets up out and he waddles out in his grave clothes. Why? We'll look at the next verse. Or the next part of the verse. And his face was wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said, loose him and let him go. So his family and friends went and unwrapped him and they were reunited with the one that they loved. And this is a picture of, of the resurrection. It's the picture when we will be reunited with the ones that we love. First Thessalonians chapter four, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. For Jesus will bring with him those who have slept in Christ Jesus. And those who are alive and remain will be caught up together and meet the Lord and forever be with the Lord. And there will be these kind of reunions over and over and over again. Now, a couple things. If you're in the midst of grieving now, I hope that this passage has been a real help to you. If you're coming alongside of people now, and maybe you will be a little bit more prepared to put a little bit more thought in how you come alongside of someone and grieve with them and help them through that process. And when you face grief, that you would go all the way through it and come out the other side, that you are moving forward in grief. You are not moving on from someone, but you are moving forward with grief with that person that you have lost. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that your word says so much about grieving. We want to thank you that you tell us so much about how to help people and how to come alongside of them. And we have this great picture of Jesus coming alongside of Mary and Martha and the way that you used it. I also pray for those that are here that this message has touched a nerve because they are going through grieving or they, 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 they need to go back and revisit something perhaps because they're stuck in grieving. Lord, I pray that you would help us that we would be able to go through the grief the way you want us to, and also that we would be able to help those who are facing grief as well. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I would like you to please keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a couple of minutes. That goes for those in the amphitheater and those on the other campuses. And if you're here today and you've never committed your life to Christ, I want to give you that opportunity the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. That means you have to receive him. You don't become a Christian just because you start attending church. You don't become a Christian because you were born into a family that was a Christian. I, I did. I went to Christ United Methodist on Gibson while I was growing up. But I had to come to the point at 13 years old where I invited Christ into my life. And if you have never done that, I want to give you an opportunity to do it. God's got a plan for your life. God's got a call. God's got a purpose. As you surrender and say, I want to live for him. Now, I also want to talk to those of you that in the past have made commitments to Christ. But then you walked away. Maybe it was because Christianity wasn't what you expected. You make a commitment to Christ and then it's radically different than you think. And, and it, spru it sprouts up quickly but then it, because it has no depth of root, it just kind of fades away. Or maybe you walked with Christ for a while and the cares and the worries of this life and the desire for, for making money or maybe some deliberate sin, you turned and you walked away and you are a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. 
And Jesus goes after the prodigals. I can attest to that. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And he said, I'll leave the 99 and go after the one. I don't know that a good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He's telling us something there. He will go after you. And you are here today listening to this for a reason. God orchestrates these kind of things that you would come back to him today. He loves the prodigal. It's the only time in the Bible we see God running is when he ran to greet the prodigal and, and put a ring on his finger and a robe on his back. And if you're here today and you would like to come back to Christ, I want to give you that opportunity as well. If you're here, just raise your hand. You want to come back to Christ? You want to give your life to Christ? Just lift your hand up now. Every head bow, eye closed. God bless you, ma'am. That's great. God bless you, sir. God bless you. Anyone else? If you're in the amphitheater as well, raise your hands. If you're in the other campuses, there are pastors there who will see it, be able to respond here. Just raise your hand. Anyone else? All right, you can put your hands down. And I would like all of you, including those who raised your hands, to repeat this prayer after me. You might say, well, why do I have to pray the prayer if I'm not getting saved? Because I have to. If I have to, you have to. All right? So I would like everyone, including those who raised their hand, to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I have sinned. And I know my sin separates me from you. But I also understand that I can be forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross. So I invite you into my life and I turn from my sin that I can live for you. In the name of Jesus, amen.